We're going to improve patient patient outcomes, but we're going to do so from the perspective of uh, design, learn, and iterate in a real-time time setting. What we love about some of these technologies is not necessarily the, the initial use case. That's obviously important. That's the foot in the door. That's the... Um, that's the initial value prop that you have to validate against in order to determine there's a there there. But when you can make an identification that there are going to be other use cases and a broadened scope of offering down the road just by virtue of company development, that gets us very excited. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with David Sylvan, who is the president of UH Ventures, the innovation and commercialization division of University Hospitals here in Cleveland, a health system with two dozen hospitals, more than 50 health centers and outpatient facilities, and over 200 physician offices located throughout 16 counties. UH Ventures comprises a diverse array of professionals with deep domain expertise ranging from venture investing and company formation to human-centered and experience design, as well as physicians, clinicians, and researchers who collectively seek to bring innovation to life in service of University Hospital's mission. Leading the organization, David gets a real breadth of exposure to entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship through a lens of the future of healthcare. Through my own company, through through Actual, I've had the real privilege to see how David approaches this fascinating world of healthcare innovation as he's invested in, advised, coached, and helped Actual mature as a company over the last three years. David comes to UH Ventures with more than 30 years of diverse corporate experience, most recently following a successful 15-year career in capital markets and investment banking, where he led a derivatives trading and public finance investment banking platform. Prior to this, David spent eight years in a variety of responsibilities at the sports marketing giant IMG, and he started his career in public accounting with Deloitte in Johannesburg, South Africa. He is also an adjunct professor locally at Case Western Reserve University's Weatherhead School of Business in their Department of Design and Innovation. I really enjoyed pulling the curtain back here on the inner workings of hospital venture groups and the work David is focused on here at University Hospitals. Please enjoy my conversation with David Sylvan. So I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation. Perhaps of all the people I think that gets suggested uh, to me to have them on the podcast, your name is, is often at the top of the list. And so yeah, separately, I, on my own volition, I've, I've been looking forward to this kind of having the, the opportunity to, to work with you through my time at, at Actual in collaboration with, with UH Ventures and just you know, seeing how you think. But many others are excited to hear uh, your story and how you think about things as well. So thank you, David, for, for coming on. Pleasure is mine, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to, you know, we'll, we'll definitely get deep into UH Ventures and the, the healthcare space and, and, and how you, know, you think about all those things. But I'd love to start more with your, your personal journey and background, you know, your, your path to, to investing, your interest in entrepreneurship, and you know, what, how that all intersects with, with Cleveland. Yeah, well, the first thing I can promise you is that was not a linear path. Certainly wasn't a, uh, <laughs> an early career aspiration. I didn't, uh, as an eight-year-old, think, you know, I really think Medtech investing is my uh, is my future. Certainly, uh, certainly far from it. I'm from South Africa. I, I trained as a traditional accountant, as a, as a chartered accountant. I actually worked worked for a brief stint at uh, a predecessor to to Deloitte, and truly, really was not having a wonderful time, Jeffrey. I just didn't feel like I was uh, realizing a passion from a career path perspective and. It was sort of hard for me to visualize that this was going to be my next uh, 40 to 50 years. In fact, that gave me the shudders. And so I took the opportunity to uh, travel to New York City. I left South Africa. I had a lot of hope that uh, it was going to be a mere trivial path for me to find uh, replacement employment in, in, in the United States, which is really to say that I'd done no research 
I didn't understand the lay <laughs> of the land, uh, uh, pun intended, uh, with regard to what it might entail for a non-US born uh, individual to seek and attain employment in the United States. And we were also going through a period in the, in the late 90s of, uh, of somewhat of a recession. I was pretty stubborn. Uh, I lived with friends in the city. I believed that I should stay in the, in the finance realm. And eventually, all of that luck ran out. Fortunately, I did grow up in South Africa with uh, someone who'd become something called a sports agent, didn't know what that was. And he worked for a company by the name of IMG, had never heard of them either. He reached out to me. I was in New York City. He indicated that there was the possibility of uh, an opportunity in Cleveland. I reminded him that I was uh, I was a finance guy. I was an accounting guy, and I wanted to stay sort of in the realms of, uh, of real estate. He reminded me that I was unemployed, and so I uh, got on a bus <laughs> took the bus to East, East 12th Street uh, in Cleveland and uh, began my career in sports marketing with ING, which was incredible, incredible company, incredible Cleveland story. Uh, it was uh, founded and, and led by Mark McCormack out of Cleveland, Ohio, but with an international presence. Did that for close to a, to a decade. Moved on then to uh, investment banking. I joined a broker dealer that KeyBank Capital Markets had when KeyBank Capital Markets acquired McDonald and Company. It was really their first foray into being able to offer synthetic financial instruments, so-called derivative instruments. And uh, I did that for a number of years, traveled the country, helped to stand up and operationalize teams uh, in a variety of places, did some fascinating things in a very complicated math-based space subsequently ended up leading a, an investment banking team as well. And then around about 2013, had the opportunity to exit stage left and really think about what it is I wanted to do sort of as the, as the, as the fourth perhaps chapter from a, a career and mm. professional development perspective. Began teaching at Case, which I still do, uh, teach in the business school where they had, love it, and uh, began some of my own uh, early stage investing, angel investing. And learned pretty quickly that the asset class of, uh, of healthcare and uh, product and platform within life sciences, you really had to be immersed in the space in order to, to understand more than just the underlying technology, but how it might integrate into workflows and, and the consumer and patient experience, the provider and patient experience. I did some of my own consulting. One of my engagements was with university hospitals. This is about seven years ago. Mm. What started as a, a very finite and, uh, and specifically focused engagement turned into an actual opportunity. I was given a lot of latitude to help to visualize and uh, to, to borrow a phrase from your current employer to actualize a, an innovation platform for the hospital system. And we've subsequently morphed a number of times with a lot of top-down support and leadership support We've managed to transition ourselves and, and tool ourselves from a, from a headcount and personnel perspective to really be an embedded venture capital platform whilst never losing sight of our roots from the perspective of more traditional innovation and then human-centered design, which is the underpinning that runs through all of our work. So that's the career path. I, I didn't think I was going to be in Cleveland long, but then I met and married the girl, Jeffrey, which happens. And... You know, I have two wonderful kids who have grown and uh, have left the house and uh, have been in Cleveland for a long time and uh, very passionate about mm. what I do right now from a mission perspective and uh, a big fan of helping Cleveland to uh, be all it can be from the perspective of, uh, of uh, attractiveness. Mm. Well, I, I, a, lot of, a lot of threads I, I want to pull in there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but per perhaps as we make our way to university hospital and the, and the venture arm, how was it, I, I guess, getting into healthcare itself, going down the, the proverbial rabbit hole and, you know, getting up to speed on, on just the industry as you started that, you know, perhaps an initial consulting project, you know, did you find that, you know, intellectually from a curiosity perspective, it, it resonated, you know, what, what was it that, you know, drew you to the space? Well, uh, to be quite candid, uh, it was it was pretty darn frustrating. Uh, I'd never come across a business model like that of healthcare. Coming from a for-profit and, and corporate space, 
as well as dabbling from an angel investor perspective in a number of opportunities outside of healthcare, I didn't realize how convoluted healthcare was. I didn't realize how challenging it was to be in the business of, of providing care. A lot of it is, uh, is self-imposed. We've, we've created complexity. We've created redundancy. We've created inefficiencies. Some of that is, is imposed upon us from a legislative perspective. Some of that is just legacy. And that all in and of itself creates opportunity. The, the, when people think about innovation in healthcare, they think about incredible surgical tools. They think about artificial intelligence. They, they think about robotic process automation. Well, there's also the, 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 the underpinning to the business. There's revenue cycle, there's supply chain. There are all of the elements that uh, obviously exist in all industries, but they are flavored by the idiosyncrasies of healthcare. And, you know, it, it struck me that there was opportunity to impact people and patients and communities and populations, but also opportunities to impact efficiencies and, uh, and, and this convoluted business and to help to create ways in which we could, you know, impact outcomes, but impact things like profitability and viability, et cetera. So I think it was dual fold. And, and you know, the, hmm. the mission aspect, the mission component was, was very com- compelling and appealing to me. So maybe now's a, a good time to just talk about, you know, what University Hospitals Ventures is, you know, maybe some of the, the history of it. I think we've covered your, your path to it specifically, but just, you know, an overview of UH Ventures, how it works, the history, the goals, the vision, the strategy, just, just kind of set in the stage for, for some other things we can talk about. Absolutely. And in some respects, we're not dissimilar from many of our, our counterparts and peers across the country. And in some, in some respects, we, we have some differentiators. The platform is ostensibly a path to sourcing sustainable alternate revenue streams for the hospital system. As healthcare continues to evolve and move from so-called volume to value or fee-for-service to uh, actual uh, opportunities to impact outcomes on a macro basis, we realize that solely relying upon net patient revenue uh, to, to underpin the financials uh, was probably going to eventually create some, some existential risks. And, and, it, and it is for many of the systems that aren't in a position to, uh, to engage with alternate uh, sustainable revenue opportunities. So we have a multifold focus. Uh, very traditionally, we help as a research institution, our own innovators, our own researchers, uh, 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 clinicians, as well as administrators, we help to give life to their innovations, to their ideas. The, the best ideas are usually sourced at the coalface. The person, the individual, the team has the problem, and they begin to iterate and solve for that. Well, some of those elements that they're solving for are, of course, scalable because these problems exist everywhere. And it's our role to determine which of those we could possibly take to the next phase with some resourcing, with some support, with some rigor and process, and uh, create a, a viable commercial opportunity out of those. But the same is true for the other side of the coin. We know we can't solve for all of our own problems, and uh, we know that we need to be able to attract opportunities from outside of the outside of the city, outside of the region, outside of the country, because many of the problems that we face are actually being solved elsewhere. And the uh, speed to solution, speed to market would imply that we need to be receptive to opportunities that are not homegrown. And so uh, part of our platform focuses on the, the sourcing of well-defined unmet needs within our system, the, the scouring of the, the sort of known universe to find opportunities that might already be creating uh, solutions to those problems, and then doing some matchmaking, finding the right stakeholder, defining which of those opportunities are the ones where we'd like to formalize more of a a strategic relationship, and then helping with the structuring of things like proof of concepts or pilots or clinical trials, all while maintaining visibility from the perspective of investability. Is this an opportunity if we're able to influence outcomes, influence design, influence product development, is this an opportunity that we would like to invest in? So there's a, a little bit of a dual fold focus. By the same token, we need to keep uh, stoking the fires of innovation and intrapreneurship. So we're responsible for a lot of 
programming associated with uh, with those endeavors. We maintain very strong ecosystem relationships, and uh, some of those are formal, some of those are informal. And we, we don't lose sight of the fact that we are responsible for uh, ensuring that Cleveland remains very viable when it comes to the attract the you know, attracting innovation from outside, attracting uh, capital from outside. There's no reason, given all of the critical mass that we have in the city, that we can't match wits with uh, many of our our you know p- partner cities, both here in Ohio and elsewhere. And there's a lot of effort underway to to do that. And I'll just close this preamble, Jeffrey, with. One of the primary differentiators for us as a as a sort of embedded corporate venture capital and innovation platform is that we are also responsible for for certain operating lines of business, and these are um, core adjacencies like specialty pharmacy or home care or hospice or lab services. These are platforms that we can take advantage of from the perspective of business model development, recapitalization perhaps uh, thinking about personnel adjustments and the on-sell perhaps of uh, excess capacity or JV work, uh, divestitures, et cetera. So it gives us a little bit more runway and leeway from the perspective of existing businesses already generating a bottom line that we can use to underwrite and support some of the more longer dated aspirational innovation uh, and investing uh, activities. You, you had mentioned that you know, in some regards, there's a shared ethos, a shared approach with with other you know uh, health system venture groups, uh, and there's the some of the differentiators uh, that that you just mentioned. I guess when you think about both how you're you're spinning out you know internal development research from your own or organization, but also working to you know find the the innovation uh, in startups externally, how do you think about you know is, is it competition with other health systems? Is it you know, just when you just kind of a little bit at a, at a macro level, the the landscape and and how that differentiation kind of manifests in, in practice. Sure. Look, we're all trying to solve for the same things. We're all at the end of the day focused on the quality of outcomes for our own patient populations. And so to the extent that there isn't geographic competition, it makes infinite sense for us to be in loose alliances with other like minded, perhaps even like sized systems all looking to solve for the same things. And that creates opportunities within a, a closed circuit, within a safe zone for us, for example, to be able to show some of our spin-out technologies to systems like us around the country and vice versa. I will tell you, I found that my counterparts and my peers across the country are extremely generous with their time, with their input, with their wisdom, with their surveillance and reconnaissance, and, and we look to reciprocate and that's really driven by this notion of uh, an acknowledgement that there are people at the end of the line that we're looking to to impact. Yes, of course, there's a financial mm-hmm. component, and and you have to keep the keep the lights on. But if philosophically or from an ethos perspective, we we don't lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing, uh, I think there's plenty of room for collaboration uh, across the country and across the world. And I'll tell you, even here in Cleveland, I have a wonderful working relationship with our friends at the Cleveland Clinic, at Metro Health, uh, at at the VA. We're responsible for our own city, and there are lots of things we could be, should be, and are beginning to do together, regardless of the, the team jersey that we wear, that will impact those patients and those populations. So there's a lot of open source, intellectual open source, if you will, Jeffrey, when it comes to these types of platforms and, and uh, our equivalents at other systems around, uh, across the country. When you think about the, the the broader vision and goal for for your organization, how do you think about you? Know, you mentioned there's there's a lot of potential sources of uh, of innovation that that you're working with. How do you think about the actual you know maybe portfolio construction of of where those sources of innovation are coming from and how much resources you're going to devote for internal development and spinouts versus external partnerships and startup investing versus, you know, areas of focus like, you know, patient experience improvements or more aligned with the work we're doing at Actual, right, on the clinician utilization side. Yeah. How do you just kind of like, there? there's so many areas that you could choose to focus on. 
Yeah, that's uh, you're exactly right. If we didn't create guardrails or didn't create themes or or have strategic foci, we could we could spend all day just looking at things across the map and not getting much done. And so, we choose periodically, whether that be quarterly or or, or semi annually or annually, to align around certain strategic imperatives, not to ignore. Uh, uh, opportunities that might come over the, the the proverbial wall that don't fit those specific themes. But in order to give ourselves focus, we align around a couple of three, couple of five op, uh, opportunity areas and look to specifically solve for those. That's that's more related to the outside in, Jeffrey, so that when we're sourcing for early stage companies, they're clumped around specific themes. That also helps you then attempt to get to best in class because then you're seeing uh, more than one of the same type and you can begin to compare and contrast. We're a little less prescriptive when it comes to inside out because there are physicians and researchers uh, across the system, all with their dedicated uh, areas of expertise and domains. We can't stifle, we can't prescribe to them when they should bring us something when something's ready, it, it needs to come to us so that we can begin to wrap resource ar- around it. So a lot more defined from an outside in, a lot more opportunistic uh, from an inside out. But we are doing a lot of work to democratize uh, innovation from the inside out. We 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 love the, the prolific inventors who have a ton of research support and big departments or labs, and we love their output, certainly. But we also know that there are opportunities to be had if we look to our community or rural hospitals, if we look beyond uh, uh, purely physicians and surgeons, and we look to clinicians and administrators and provide mechanisms for them to bring their inventions and innovations to us and almost create an incubation mechanism for them curated in order to help them get to some type of viability from the perspective of their, of their inventions, their opportunities. Very few of them make it, uh, and and we're not naive to that reality. But the effort that we put into to appropriately counseling and mentoring these internally sourced opportunities that don't come from the physicians and the surgeons is wonderful from the perspective of the culture that we're looking to to continue to to build and support here uh, at the hospital. So we remain receptive and opportunistic. But we, from an outside-in perspective, try to be pretty, uh, pretty rifle shot uh, uh, with with the ability to sort of uh, mid-course steer adjust uh, as circumstances change. From the inside-out perspective, one of the the things I've always been really curious about, I think, both on the academic side and also on the practitioner side, is you know how, how would you go about trying to get you know more clinicians to pursue an entrepreneurial path. Mm-hmm. Which is a hard thing, you know, off the bat, given there's a clinician shortage that we're dealing yep. with at, at a macro yep. level in the first place. But from your perspective, you know, what, where, where does that bridge, you know, kind of come from, and and how do you how do you try and facilitate that? Well, it starts philosophically. Are individuals permissioned to be innovative? And and you know, you you've underscored a a workforce resilience and shortage issue, and that is a a a material problem. But generally speaking, we want to put ourselves in a position where the system permissions inventors to have discretionary time in order to do this type of work. Difficult to do when there's a, when there's a, a patient population that needs to be served. So you have to be discreet about the process. Uh, you have to be realistic about the process. But we try to act as that enablement, both from the perspective of people resourcing as well as financial support. There's a lot of incentive for individuals to be innovative. If, if, for example, we support an internally or homegrown opportunity and it becomes, uh, it yields from the perspective of, of uh, revenue or outcome, there's a very generous share uh, mechanism back to the inventor. That in and of itself is not, not usually the sole inducement for people to bring us opportunities. They are candidly caregivers and they want to solve for a problem that they're experiencing with their own patient population or their own domain. But um, this really starts with permissioning, with a, a, an organizational ph- ph- philosophy that, that supports individuals and in the time that they need to take in order to be uh, inventive 
and not merely sort of be tinkering around in the proverbial garage at, uh, at 10 p.m. On the, on the flip side of that coin, when you think about outside in opportunities, how do you go about sourcing them? Yep. You know, either do, do you approach that more like a traditional VC from that perspective? How do you weigh these different opportunities you know, what, what's some of the investment criteria you're, you're thinking through? Yeah, absolutely. So we have some formal and some informal relationships. We, we have a very strong and long-dated relationship with a, a venture capital and innovation platform out of Silicon Valley known as Plug and Play. They, for example, would be one of our first calls when we're looking to solve for a specific problem statement or, or a domain. And they will begin to curate a list of opportunities that they have in their portfolio that they will put in front of us in, a, in an orchestrated manner for us to begin to make some selections. We, as a ventures platform, don't act unilaterally. We always bring the stakeholder, the, the, the individual, the peoples, the department with the problem to the table with us so that we can jointly adjudicate uh, the go, no-go on various opportunities that we, we see. And so we might consider 20, seriously consider five or six, and only do something with one or two. But the fact that we saw 20 in the first place through a formal sourcing relationship like that of plug and play helps us get to the, the, the quality quotient that we know we need to, to attain. Some of these relationships are informal. They're with, uh, they're with uh, angel networks. They're with law firms. They're with venture capital platforms who are incented to want to have their portfolio companies initiate a pilot or, or commercial arrangement with a hospital system. So the, the good news is there's no shortage of the ways in which we can source opportunities. We belong to something known as the Avia Network, for example, 60 of the largest healthcare systems in the country with a very distinct digital focus. No shortage of opportunities. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is there's no shortage of opportunities. So we have to be very clear with the manner in which we think about intake, the pace with which we get to a very quick no, because that's as valuable to us as it is to the early stage company or the or the introducing entity. And it's always a no with a with a why. We never just you know uh, you know unilaterally walk away from something. There's always the 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 feedback and the input that we give, which is of value to to both parties. And we value the experience of the entrepreneur or the early stage company as much as we value the experience of our own providers and of course our patients. And that helps us then with the the next iteration. The next time they come around with something, it's a it's it's a little bit more refined and defined based on feedback that we've given. But we have an intake team that uses a a codified process, most of which was home built, uh, that enables us to very quickly get to that next step disposition. Is it a perhaps? Is it a not yet? Is it needs more information? You know, is it a park or is it an actual, you know, let's 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 start to get serious from a uh, an engagement perspective. And and uh, the team is pretty adept at doing that. I'll ask maybe a more selfish question uh, as someone, you know, building in the in the healthcare space, which is a hard thing. It, it's I, you know, I think building any any startup is is a challenging thing but i think there are some particular aspects of of healthcare that that are challenging and i you know i'm not even sure if in in unique ways necessarily but there's a lot of you know entrenched process and as much as you've mentioned already as there's there's very apparent opportunity and and room for improvement there is a there's a and, and by i think you know, from a, a good place, a, a risk aversion, right? The the way that that people have done things has worked historically, and can be used as a justification for continuing to do things in in that same way, right? That if the process is working, you know, let, let's let's keep it that that way in in some capacity. W- what have you seen as the like highest signal characteristics of of companies, entrepreneurs who have we have like broken through in this space and gotten people to, you know, as an industry, as a healthcare organization, you know, change behavior, change the way that that they're doing things. Yeah, yeah, great, great question. I think the glacial pace with which healthcare makes decisions, that risk aversion, that sort of uh, is the the consistent thread that runs through decisioning, was upended by COVID, and I'll talk to that in a second. 
Hmm. Secondly, this acknowledgement that we can now no longer treat you, Jeffrey, as a passenger and as a taker and recipient, but treat you as a customer has also forced us to think about the pace with which we decision a little bit more quickly. But I'll start with COVID. We would traditionally take a year, 18 months of consideration and iteration around an opportunity before it ever had the chance of going live in a proof of concept or pilot. But along came COVID and the the critical nature of speed to care associated with with addressing the, the, the pandemic. And suddenly we were standing up opportunities in literally days. And now we realized that breakneck speed brings with it inherent risk. And so we were very mindful of where we could move with that kind of pace and where we had to be a little bit more circumspect. But it did prove to us that we were our own self-imposed hindrance. And if you can create a cadence and process with the nodes along the path that you need to address, IT, legal, compliance, risk, if you can create and forge those relationships where there's mutual intentionality around coming to an agreement in, uh, an, an, in an appropriately rapid uh, elapse of time, we realized we could do things a lot, lot quicker. And, and, you know, we're working hard right now to make sure that the pendulum doesn't mean revert all the way back to the old way of doing things. You know, it's hard to want to push back on the risk quotient because do no harm and those implications are sacrosanct to, to the delivery of care. But there are areas where we know that, that, um, that those impositions are perhaps a little bit more rigorous than they would need to be. And so we, we, we work with our stakeholders internally to, 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 to massage the process in a little bit more of a you know, speed of business versus speed of healthcare care manner. It's an art. It's not a science. And, you know, you have to pick your battles. And um, it's for that reason that we focus a fair amount of attention on opportunities that don't necessarily apply, uh, require a very rigorous FDA approval path, uh, pathway. Those business tools, for example, are very exciting if they can create efficiencies and outcomes without there being any clinical implication. We're not afraid of uh, the, the opportunities that do imply a lot more uh, scrutiny from the perspective of of process and approval and uh, and 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 reg- regulatory oversight, you have to create a balanced portfolio. And I think you know we're very sensitive to concentration risk when it comes to our portfolio build. We do want those things that are a little bit riskier and have perhaps more runway, but perhaps have you know larger potential outcomes. But you've got to balance that with things that can, can get into the hands of the users and begin to have an impact in a little bit more of, a, of an expedited manner. I want to maybe go a little deeper on the, the COVID thread, but not, not necessarily just COVID. But I, I think, you know, as, as a mechanism for, for change and opportunities that, that you see going forward, what do you find to be the biggest, you know, risks uh, headwinds to maybe not just even university hospitals, but but healthcare organizations at large at, at a macro level, and you know with that, what what has you maybe most excited about areas for for innovation? Yeah, a couple of things, and you you sort of alluded to it earlier. There is a massive workforce resiliency challenge that we're facing. What the pandemic did underscore and did highlight uh, and amplify for all of us was the challenge faced by physicians, by clinicians, nurses specifically, when it comes to, to bedside care and, the, and the, the ability to most appropriately care for patients and, and give them the, the, the time and attention needed in a, in a pressure cooker type environment. And so the shortages that we're now all experiencing nationally are a function of that resilience uh, and that burnout uh, that was that was uh, initiated throughout the the pandemic. How do we solve for some of those things? Well, you know, in, in a simplistic sense, people would say, well, you know, just pay people more. Well, you and I both know that that is not a panacea for for anything. Well, why don't you just change the you know working conditions and the working environment? Well, that's the long game. You can't do that on a dime either. And so uh, it's important for us to think about 
how might we, for example, using technology enablement uh, or using a, a, a different modality of, of throughput and, and access, how might we alleviate some of those people bottlenecks uh, and put people in a position where they're, they're uh, focusing specifically on uh, their day job, their top of license, and alleviating some of the uh, administrative burden, for example. So we're trying to chip away at the edges with technology enablement, with some process redesign, but th- this is going to be a, a perennial challenge, and this is the long game for uh, for all of us. When you kind of gauge those challenges, do you feel a sense of optimism? Does it keep you up at night? Like what, what are the, when you think about the different challenges, which are the ones that uh, have you most concerned? You know, the, the reality for not-for-profit healthcare uh, is, is our meager margins. You know, we, 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 we do live on a, a, a small bottom line by the very nature of the business that we're in. So one of the concerns is always going to be, you know, headwinds from the perspective of revenue. Are we covering our bases from the standpoint of generating enough income appropriately in order to, to, to keep the operation viable? To the extent that there are bottlenecks with throughput and to the extent that there are resource constraints when it comes to headcount, that exacerbates those, those headwinds. So that is an area and a cause for concern. But the pace with which we're witnessing innovation, uh, innovative business models, uh, technology enablement that I mentioned earlier, inventions around disease state management and cures, all of that, of course, is cause for optimism. We have to weather the early storms, but we have to stick at it and we have to uh, ensure that we don't lose sight of uh, the long game, uh, notwithstanding the immediacy of some of the short-term challenges. It's not to say that I just firmly believe that this too will pass, but candidly, Jeffrey, this too will pass. You know, we, as we begin to, to knock down one pin after the next, we put ourselves in a position where we begin to, to self-cure. And I think most forward-thinking, um, innovative healthcare systems are in the same boat. Mm-hmm. On, on the, the, the thread of optimism, uh, we had, you know, Eugene Malinsky on, on the podcast a, a few weeks ago. And, you know, kind of relayed the the story of Lazarite and and the work that he's doing there, and it's it's incredibly inspiring, uh, and instills a lot of optimism in in me personally. And I, I'd love to get from your perspective, having kind of this bird's eye view of obviously Eugene and the work he's doing, uh, but you know, of so many different entrepreneurs, both internally, externally, who are are working on on really impactful opportunities. You know, just kind of taking stock of, of, of the portfolio and the companies that you get to work with, you maybe paint a picture of, of some of your favorites. Sure. Sure. And Eugene is uh, Eugene and Lazarite is a, probably a great metaphor, Jeffrey, for the types of companies that we like to work for, including candidly your, your own, the company that you're, that you're currently with. One of the gems when it comes to the identification of who you want to sort of partner with on a, a long-term basis is this notion of, of coachability. Do, does, the, does the entrepreneur, the founder, the inventor, are they receptive to feedback and input that helps them uh, continue to iterate in a positive manner around their inventions? And certainly to the extent that the, there is very direct patient implications associated with these with these companies like the Lazarites, like the Actuals, like the Vicarious Surgicals and, and the Renalysis, and I could go on, the, the common thread between all of them is we're going to improve patient, patient outcomes, but we're going to do so from the perspective of uh, design, learn, and iterate in a real-time time setting. What we love about some of these technologies is not necessarily the, the initial use case. That's obviously important. That's the foot in the door. That's the... Um, that's the initial value prop that you have to validate against in order to determine there's a there there. But when you can make an identification that there are going to be other use cases and a broadened scope of offering down the road just by virtue of company development, that gets us very excited. Yes, Lazarite has this incredible wireless arthroscope tool, but they actually have an incredible 
light source technology. And we think that the light source technology has application across a number of, of, of use cases, some, some being contemplated, some not yet thought of. In the case of your company, you know, Jeffrey, you know, speed to clinician uh, care via uh, accelerated credentialing. Incredible. Wonderful. That's, that's, that was the use case that opened the door. But the power of the data and the workforce intelligence that you're going to create in your sort of V2s, V3s, V4s of your company's evolution, that gets us very excited. And I could continue with, with every one of our portfolio companies, that knock-on, that next phase, that next gen of, of product development is, is really what keeps us uh, very, very engaged and, uh, and very focused on partnering with and helping the company get to those, those, those next endpoints. Uh, of the companies that you're working with, in a scenario where, where they are successful at that nth degree, uh, not, not maybe in the first pass, but I'm curious, you know, which of those represents the most drastic change in you know, the way healthcare works, right? If, if one of these companies is really successful, I'm curious just you know, from a, a real future you know, vision perspective, what are, what are some of those companies, what are the problems that they're working on and, and how is healthcare different if they, if they realize their vision? Well, there's, for example, and I'll just give you a domain as an example. We, we unfortunately in this region live in an epicenter from the perspective of the opioid crisis. We're increasingly seeing opportunities technology-wise with so-called prescribed digital therapeutics. How can we intervene in these patients' lives from the perspective of bringing about healing, bringing about cures, bringing about uh, a, a, a amelioration of, of, of their challenges without molecules, without pharmacology? And so there's a massively growing field around the notion of prescribed digital therapeutics these are tools and technologies that are the, the delivery modality is candidly your cell phone or your laptop. But from an efficacy perspective, they're having similar, same or better results compared to drugs without any of the side effects, the addiction implications and the long-term harm that is, uh, is brought about through, through abuse. And we're all familiar with all of those. That is just one example that, for example, we find very, very exciting. We also know that the, the, the pandemic brought about a different scrutiny when it came to digital tethering and telehealth and remote care and, you know, the resurgence of healing and hospital at home. We're not going back on any of those things. We, we, we are going to continue to lean into those opportunities because they will be transformative for, for healthcare. You know, we have the strange business model Jeffrey, as you know, we, we do better when you actually don't come and see us. And so uh, a little bit antithetical, but how can we create uh, opportunities to, to uh, bring healing and, and, and hope to people without forcing them to actually enter our bricks and mortar domain? So those are just a couple of examples of the things that we think will uh, disrupt and transform permanently the current way in which we, uh, we deliver care. You mentioned maybe the the counterintuitive nature there of you know of the likelihood the proclivity that you will do better when when folks are not coming to you. What what do you find to be like the biggest misconceptions that that people have about maybe healthcare at large, but also you know then more specifically the you know what it is that 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 you're doing and and the nature of your work. Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is the longer the patients in the hospital, the better the hos the hospital's doing from the perspective of, you know, the revenue generated by that patient's presence. And of course we know that's not true. The the business model of healthcare requires reimbursement and uh, there are caps and limitations on the extent to which we we can generate a return and and a, an appropriate compensation for the delivery of that of that care. So a lot of what we try to do is to impact those critical nodes along the journey or the path of the patient. So our innovation group does look very, very, very uh, closely at the notions of access and length of stay and readmission. Th those are areas that you can begin to solve for that uh, don't necessarily have to do with the uh, the delivery of uh, of care, but our process issues. They're 
their, their logistics implications, their mechanistic from the perspective of um, how we can intervene along those different nodes. So a true understanding of the journey of that patient throughout their life cycle from a, a, a sensitive and, and, and inquisitive perspective is helping us to impact those nodes along that patient's journey. As you then impact the, the uh, implications of things like readmissions or length of stays or no-shows or access, you know, none of those are technical from the perspective of, of uh, physicians' delivery of care. They process steps, and we focus a lot of attention on that. When you think about innovation, do you think about the levers that come outside of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship? And I guess like what I mean by that specifically is, you know, how how much meliorating impact is there to be had from rethinking the legislative side of this, right? Like the legislative framework that healthcare exists within uh, the regulatory side of it, you know, where maybe it's not innovation from a perspective of creating something new, but it's it's addressing the environment in, in which we are operating. Yeah, there, you know, there's a tremendous machine around how we appropriately inform legislation because that, of course, impacts the manner in which you know healthcare systems uh, keep the lights on, you know, by virtue of being reimbursed for 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 various offerings, and that is a process. There's a lot of education that goes into ensuring that the the people making the decisions from a legislative perspective understand the 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 pain points the path and 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 the journey so there is a lot of lift to still be had from that perspective and it's uh, it's it's not um it's not signing legislation and sitting back and letting it play out it is it it needs to remain fluid and needs to to evolve an example would be what we're doing in terms of hospital at home and 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 some of the remote monitoring and telehealth implications the, the the manner in which we are reimbursed for some of those offerings is not yet permanently codified. And so we have to make sure that we influence that from a legislative perspective to ensure that doing the right thing for the patient in a time and place where it is most applicable to the patient's needs is going to be a compensated uh, activity. Otherwise, we're going to revert back to the way in which we did things beforehand. Uh, and of course, that'll have its own knock-on implications with regard to the patient's experience, certainly access, and then by definition, outcomes. As you reflect on on your journey uh, so far with UH Ventures, what has surprised you most about the experience? What, uh, what are some of the, the lessons learned yeah, you know, I think the lesson learned for me was um, I approached this initially as uh, an intriguing intellectual opportunity and uh, uh, a chance to have some fun and to to consistently learn from from incredibly brilliant people, you know, with whom I'm fortunate to be surrounded by every day. What I didn't factor in, what I had an underappreciation of, Jeffrey, was that I would actually fall in love with the mission that that I would finally find a reason why I needed to quell my frustration and and if uh, if I couldn't nuance it, use blunt force to try get to solutions because there is a person at the end of the line. And what struck me, of course, was that was exactly the reason why I was surrounded by everyone I, I am uh, within the healthcare setting. No one joins this industry because they think it's going to be fun. You obviously want to have some fun, but the mission component, that that ability to be a caregiver and a healer, even if you're not a clinician, uh, is incredibly powerful. And I think that was the largest revelation for me very early on in this journey, and it's uh, it's uh, it's stuck with me ever since. Hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's uh, it's certainly I think what resonates with a lot of folks at at my own company, and and certainly. That- most of the entrepreneurs I know working working in this space. I'll, I'll bookend the the conversation here with our typical closing question, uh, which we we ask everyone who comes on the show, um, bringing it back to Cleveland, which is you know not necessarily for your favorite thing in Cleveland, but for something that other folks may not know about, a hidden gem, if you will. You know, for me, it's. I hope it's not hidden um, because it's in plain sight. But I I think that we offer via the Metro Park system something that is incredibly unique. And I increasingly need tree therapy every weekend. And 
there is an endless opportunity for me to uh, spend time in the in the uh, emerald belt, I think, or the emerald necklace, I think it's called, Jeffrey. Um, mm. So it's not a hidden yeah, yeah. gem, but I I don't know that enough people take sufficient advantage of this offering that's uh, right on our on our doorstep, almost regardless of where you live, and uh, the 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 diversity and the variety associated with the the various metro park systems, how they're chained together, up to and including uh, the lake. I think it's just a wonderful aspect of the city that uh, that I, I certainly take advantage of and look forward to uh, every uh, at, you know every weekend. Yeah, it, it is a special place, that's for sure. Well, David, I really appreciate. Uh, your time for for you coming on and and sharing your perspective on on all the work that that you are doing. Um, so thank you very much for for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. If folks had anything that they wanted to follow up with you about, what would be the the best way for them to to do so? You know, I think a couple of ways. We have a uh, an intake portal via our website ventures.uhhospitals.org. There is an intake portal uh, or an idea submission portal on that page. Uh, we're very active on LinkedIn. Uh, I think that would be another opportunity for uh, someone to either reach me personally or reach our platform more generally speaking. So those would be the two modalities. Awesome. Well, thank you again, David. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeffrey. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.